Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of the Lord's day, a set-apart day to worship you, to study your word, to hear your voice, to fellowship together, to take the Lord's table. Thank you for the treasure that that is to us. I pray that we would treasure it all the more as each day uh, turns into the next, that we would rejoice in the steadfast love of our God. Pray now that you'd prepare our hearts, declutter our minds from the busyness and trials and troubles of this week. We ask that we would be still before our God, that we would have tender hearts and good soil to receive the scriptures. Give me uh, strength to speak as I ought. And we do pray for our brothers in the Middle East now that you would bless them richly, let their time be fruitful and effective and keep them safe. All for the glory of God. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we continue now, we took a break for a couple of weeks uh, as we worked through, Ben Whittinghill worked through Psalm 23, and that was a rich study. Uh, we're headed back into now our Exodus series, and we are going to be looking at the second commandment within the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments as they're better known. And we come to verses 4 through 6 of Exodus chapter 20. So if you have your Bible, you'd please turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the back. And I would ask if you're able and willing to stand with me as we read these four verses, or three verses rather, in honor of the Lord's word. Where Moses, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. You may be seated. I've entitled this message this morning, Loving God Rightly. Loving God Rightly. And it's an interesting thing to ponder how it is that we should love God rightly. Of course, we assume, as we ought, that we should love God. We sort of make uh, an assumption on many levels that in our lives we are lovers of God, and yet not so often do we stop to consider perhaps, are we loving God rightly? Interestingly, my wife and I were having a conversation just this week about some of the ways in which over the last 12 years of marriage we have successfully and perhaps unsuccessfully loved one another. And if you ever had those kind of vulnerable, difficult conversations with your spouse, they can be very fruitful, they can be very difficult, they can be very exposing, where you recognize that so much of the love that uh, I have at different points, given my wife, uh, unfortunately can be very self-centered, it can be very me-centered, it can be very uh, much all about me. And, of course, on one level, after 12 years of marriage, we've had plenty of opportunities to kind of flesh that out to the surface, and my wife as well, and we've been able to navigate, as every marriage must, uh, what love in the Christian understanding of it is within the marriage. If it were not for the boundaries of Ephesians 5, certainly, like many marriages, our marriage would have had harder seasons because we would have been trying to grope in the darkness for a way to love each other, not anchored by anything but ourselves. 
And I think you can probably relate, where the Lord has given us his word as the standard by which we can define love, we can pursue love, and we can understand that love first comes from God. It's a sacrificial love. And uh, in the context of marriage, it's a great opportunity to sort of figure out what loving each other actually looks like according to the word of God. And many times we stumble around seeking to fulfill ourselves uh, never understanding how the other person is actually receiving that love. Now, this message is not about marriage. This message is about loving God. But the uh, analogy, I think, works in many ways because often we approach our relationship with God in a similar dynamic where we suppose that our version of loving God is just. We suppose our emphasis and efforts at loving God are pleasing to him. And without the scriptures, we would be running blind. But helpfully enough, God, especially here in these verses, actually outlines for us how he is to be loved, how he is to be pursued. And I think it's so fascinating as we consider this, uh, and that'll be the subject of our sermon today, uh, that we would understand how God is to be loved. And I want to do a quick review of maybe three weeks ago, where we entered in upon studying the Ten Commandments. And I said a few things in that sermon that I just want to review for us as a foundational prep for where we're going. And I said a few weeks ago that God's redemptive actions, they create, enable, and sustain our obedience. And secondly, God's commandments, the law, are not burdensome, but made possible to obey by grace because God has wed us to himself in grace. And this is really foundationally important because we approach the law of God and some of us, depending on our background, approach it with all kinds of baggage, kind of like we do our relationships. And we bring things into it and impose things upon it that are just not true. And God wants us to understand that the law of God is not a burdensome yoke that uh, crushes us, though it does expose our sin and point us to Christ fundamentally, it doesn't only do that. It teaches us and gives us the parameters for how to pursue relationship with God. It gives us the means by which we can engage in relationship with God, please the Lord, and in so doing, find our greatest pleasure in loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the foundation for application in the law of God is that it is to be obeyed in the same way it is to be believed. By faith. It's really important. The law of God is to be obeyed in the same way it is to be believed, by faith. So in the first commandment we saw a few weeks ago, you could say that we saw the priority of worship, the exclusivity of having God as our only God. Now this week in the second commandment, we see building upon the first, not merely the priority of worship, but we see the path of worship. In other words, we see that how we worship God is as significant as who we worship. And I want this to kind of con concisely paint a picture over our whole time this morning in saying this, that mankind's perennial problem with idolatry is that we do not fundamentally want to worship God according to his self-revelation, but according to our imagination. We would rather have a God that reflects our image than worship God in a way where we rightly reflect his image. It's really important. 
Our problem is that we want a God in our own image. We want to make God like us. Now, this is the satanic trap from the garden that Satan coming to Eve would tell Eve, you know, God just really is holding out on you. If you eat this apple, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You will have what he's not giving you. You will be fully enlightened, so to speak. You will have all knowledge and all wisdom and this this kind of bait-and-switch deal that Satan, since the beginning, has been selling people, that we can be our own gods. And unfortunately, when we pursue that route, we find uh, such brokenness and such pain and such disillusionment and such a lie. But this is our continual war that we do not want to worship God according to his self-revelation. So this is the rub of the second commandment where God says in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So we see that this was a real temptation uh, for the Israelite people coming out of Egypt, coming out of this culture in which they were steeped in idolatry. They had such a pantheon of gods in Egypt that it would have been no, no big deal to them, and they're going to prove it, and I'll get into that in a moment, uh, to create a God in their own imagination. It would be nothing. Now, we, we look at this in the 21st century as Westerners, and we say, man, that's just kind of weird. Like, you would literally, like, cut down a tree, and you'd carve it up, and it would be a God, and you'd bow down to it and be like, well, you know, what, what were you on at the time, you know, kind of question. Uh, but we have our own version of it, and we're going to unpack some of what that looks like for us in the 21st century because the same root issue remains the same. But for them, this was a real temptation because all around them, they could see visible manifestations of what worshiping God this way or worshiping a God this way looks like. And more significantly than even that, when God comes down on Mount Sinai to give the law, he came down as a consuming fire. But notice this, without any form, okay? God comes down as a consuming fire, but without any form. Deuteronomy 4.15 is very helpful here. When it says, God says through Moses to the people, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. So this is very significant in unpacking God's self-revelation to his people and also understanding how we enter into a right worship of God based upon his self-revelation, because God came down on Sinai as transcendent, yet imminent. Okay, that sounds very confusing. God came down as transcendent, meaning completely other, not of this created order, not of this world, but yet he approached in imminence, meaning he brought his presence close to man. He condescended on the mountain. So he had transcendence and imminence, meaning that his self-revelation did not remove or change his transcendence. God remained completely other while coming close. This is very hard for us to wrap our minds around because we can't really understand intellectually these deep mysteries of God. But his presence was seen and felt visibly by fire, by thunder, by lightning. But his self-expressed revelation of his character This is really important. His self-expressed revelation of his character was in words. Okay, was in words. So God communicates to his people his love, his being, his character 
by words, not by a form. So he's making this very plain to the Israelites that when I condescended, when my self-revelation revealed who I was to you on the mountain, I did not bring with me a form or an image. I spoke with words. And this is really foundationally important to understanding our relationship with God holistically because what God is doing here is he's showcasing the design from the Old Testament all the way through the New that we are pursuing relationship with God by faith, not by sight, okay? Pursuing relationship with God by faith and not by sight. So when God comes down on the mountain, he doesn't tell the people to worship the mountain because his presence touched it. He says, worship me. So the mountain doesn't become sacred just because God came down upon it. Now, there was a sense in which the mountain was holy, in a sense that you could say, certainly from the text, that God told Moses very explicitly, don't touch the mountain, don't go near it, because my presence is there. We see that in the sanctuary as they build the sanctuary. There was the Holy of Holies, and if you were to go into the Holy of Holies, you would, you would drop dead in the spot. So there was a real sense where the presence of God brought real fear and real terror uh, in real awe, in real holiness, and none of that is to be taken away. But the mountain wasn't the point. God's voice from the mountain was the point. So God, in using his voice as the means of self-revelation, <laughs> literally sets in stone the way in which he would primarily relate to us in his transcendence. I hope that made sense. The worship We'll see three things that outline this idea. The worship of the true living God would be, first of all, word-centered. Okay, word-centered and guided by objective truth. The word of God as opposed to experiential subjectivity. Okay, this is really important. So God in his self-expression on Sinai came down without form spoke words, the whole Ten Commandments. In so doing, he was creating a dynamic where he was showing his people that the relationship that they would have with him would be word-centered, not sight-centered. Now, we can delineate from that, secondly, that it would flow from faith, not sight. So because it's word-centered and word-saturated, the worship of God would not be merely experientially driven. It would not be pursued only by sight. It would have to be pursued by faith, which would be the means of their righteousness in coming close to God, which is consistent with the whole counsel of God, that we approach God by faith. Our righteousness in God is by faith through grace. So this is really important as God sets the tone for how he wants his people to love him. He says, I want it to be word-centered and guided by what I say. I want it to flow from faith in the word of God and work of God in the world, not dominated by superstition and occultic practice. And thirdly, the worship of God was exclusive and not pluralistic with many ways to the divine. Rather, there was one God and he demanded our exclusive love and obedience. So God here sets the tone, sets the term, sets the covenant for how his people would engage with God. And I find this very helpful uh, for our own day. Because if you're tracking with me, we live in a day where the worship of God seems like we throw it up in the air and whatever comes down we keep kind of idea, where we just kind of like make a mix mash of 
all these different ideas, and we all want to worship God kind of our own individualistic way, and, and we say, well, I worship God my way, and I worship God this way, and I'm not saying anyone in this room does that, but I'm saying collectively in the larger scheme of how God is often sadly worshipped, he is not worshipped as he has been revealed. He is worshipped as man so chooses to worship him. He is worshipped often by the net end of our imagination. He's worshipped by our sight. And this all connects to why the second commandment is so essential in not creating for ourselves an image of God based on our own imagination, based on our own senses that is not in keeping with the self-revelation of God from his word. So if we're going to worship God as the people of God, we must worship him as he has revealed himself and in no other way. Every other way is an abomination to God. So we must worship as people informed by the scriptures. We must worship as coming to God in faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that if we come to God, we must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the only way to please God, the Bible says, is through faith, not by sight. So God has a way in which he wants to be loved, a way in which he wants to be worshipped. And it is not the way of man. It is not the way of the flesh. It is not the way of our culture. It's exclusive love. It's binding love. It's not always lead to God. It's one way leads to God, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a great mystery on its own, but as it relates to this commandment of not making an image for yourself, we see that God is invisible. God maintains his invisible attributes throughout the Bible. But in Christ, in the second person of the Trinity, he reveals himself in embodied flesh, in the person of Jesus. And that's why Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, meaning literally in the Greek, he is the icon of the Father. John tells us that he has revealed the Father. So in a real sense, as progressive revelation takes us into the New Testament, we see God's unfolding plan of redemption. We see that the Father remains invisible, but yet is revealed fully and finally through the person and work of the Son. And what this means for us is that our worship is Christological. Our worship is to Christ and Christ alone, because he has revealed the Father So there is not all roads lead to God. There is one road that leads to God, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. So it's quite profound as you consider that. But here, coming back to our text today and working with the context that surrounded it, the people were not to make an image out of God. And now we look at that and say, okay, so, you know, I understand that. So big deal. You know, they're in this pluralistic culture where there's all these gods and, you know, they have this ancient bent to sort of create something out of the created order and call it God and, you know, okay, but but how does that line up with us? And I think it's important to kind of dig a little deeper into what the pagan idolatry of the ancient world looked like because it was not innocuous. It was not as though they took a cactus out of the ground and said, this is my God, though that would be blasphemous. It was deeper than that. It was centered in sexual immorality, child sacrifice, and the worship of the created instead of the creator. It was demonic in every way. 
And God was going to judge this idolatry through dispossessing them, and in many cases, wiping them out, using Israel as his weapon of war. And God is just in doing so. The movement of the Israelites into the promised land was a war campaign in some respects, and it was a judgment upon these pagan nations that refused to bend the knee to God alone. So Israel coming out of Egypt would have been very familiar with this pantheon of gods and they would have had a real temptation to go back to a false substitute. Uh, And they proved it in Exodus chapter 32. They proved it in Exodus 32. I want to kind of just read a little bit to you uh, in Exodus 32 because I want to show an example of what ends up happening as Moses is on this mountain And he's literally getting this law. The people of God begin to disintegrate. In Exodus 32, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron, who is Moses' brother, made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what happens here is they sacrifice to this cow, this golden image. They feast on the sacrifices. And then they engage in spring break on steroids. That's what they do. It's uh, a sexual orgy. It's um, in keeping with the pagan way. It's keeping with what they learned in Egypt. It's keeping with what the Egyptians did. And God says to Moses, he says, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Powerful statement. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And, of course, the narrative goes on. We don't have time to read the whole chapter. You can read it at your pleasure. But needless to say, God in that chapter is pretty convinced he's going to wipe out his people. He's going to come down in judgment and just wipe them out. And Moses stands in the gap as a mediator. Uh, stands in the gap as a type of Christ, says, Father, don't do that. Because what will it look like if you brought these people out only to wipe them out in the wilderness because of their sin? And, of course, Moses deals with the calf. He grinds it up in the brook, throws it in the brook of Kidron, actually makes people drink the water of the brook with the calf ground up in it. Um, So it's just a nasty scene all around. God is very severe about this level of idolatry. And we say, okay, well, I understand that from the Old Testament, but, but what does that look like in our day? And this is where I kind of want to bring it home. What, what is this whole idea of imagery? How does it manifest in our culture, in our lives? 
Well, I want to first, before I answer some of those questions, I want to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25, because this is a New Testament, uh, Paul is speaking in the New Testament of what this looks like in our day. Not only his day, but our day. When he gives this polemic on idolatry, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise. They became fools. And what did they do? This is an underliner. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This is a concise synopsis of what's, what the, the great sin of the second commandment is. That we would exchange the truth of God, the self-revelation of God, for a lie. We would turn it inward. We'd corrupt ourselves. We would exchange the glory of the immortal, the only, the invisible God for that which is visible, that which is tangible, that which is seen, that which appeals to the senses. We would say, this will be my God. Even if it's only a representative of the God in heaven, this will be my version, a substitute, a cheapened model, if you will. It'll be the thing that sort of I have in front of me to lead me along. Because I can't see him up there. I don't really want to trust what I can't see. I want to trust what I can see. I want to feel. I want to touch. I want to know experientially. And often this was the way of the pagan culture. They would engage in sexual immorality. They would cut themselves. They would sacrifice their children in some cases. All in an attempt, a heinous attempt, to get the gods to respond to them. And God says, no, I have responded to you. This is my self-revelation Now, how will you respond to me? It's a totally inverted situation. So fundamentally, to disobey the second commandment is to reject God's transcendence and in my self-will manufacture a substitute in the imminent that enables me to attribute divine efficacy to the creaturely instead of God. So I disobey God by rejecting his transcendence, rejecting his self-revelation, and in my own will, I manufacture a cheap substitute, a false God, in the present, from the created order, that I attribute divine and supernatural efficacy to instead of God. And we say, well, I would never do that. That seems outlandish. But this is what we do when we love the world. This is what we do when we love the world over loving God. So this is not merely an ancient problem with no relevance to us. It is a problem that we have to reckon with. So to answer my question of how does this show up in our lives today, I believe many of our manufactured substitutes that we are prone to worship today in God's place, even in the church, are the false gods of health, money, success, They are, in a sentence, the love of the world. They are a love of the world. 
1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Interestingly, when Satan came to Eve in the garden, he came to her and said, look, Eve, look at this, this fruit. And it says that it was desirable to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. Uh, and it was um, pleasant to the senses. It had three characteristics. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. There was three characteristics that tempted Eve in the first place to indulge in this forbidden fruit. And they were the three, precisely the three things that First John here outlines as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We deceive ourselves and say we can be wiser than God. We can pursue status. We can pursue a level of prestige in the world that's acceptable to our peer group and that puts us in good standing and gives us a sense of we have it together. And often we are pursuing this in so many subtle ways the pride of life, where we want status, we want success, we want prestige, we want the acclaim of those in our lives. And all of these are fundamental uh, to being human in some way, where we want these things, but because of our fallen nature, we want them in corrupt ways. We pursue them in corrupted ways. We want the forbidden fruit. That is the same thing that was offered to Eve. It, it looks good. It tastes good. It will make me good. And we chase this, and we love it, and we pursue it, and we do it often in the name of God. We call these things blessings, and we put a veneer of godliness over them and say this is just the blessings of being righteous. Now, I want to qualify that a little bit because oftentimes they are indeed blessings flowing from God. The rain, it says, falls on the righteous and the wicked. You can be blessed in all of these ways and be far from God. And you can be blessed in all of these ways and be dearly close to God. So the blessings are not the issue. The things are not in themselves the problem. It is when we pursue these things as substitutes to God. When we need these things over and above God, that they become idolatrous. I think a good way to flesh this out is looking at the life of Abraham. When Abraham the patriarch, offered up Isaac on the mountain. What he was doing was declaring his friendship with God by loving, fearing, and trusting the giver over the gift. He was declaring in a profound way that would foreshadow Christ on the cross. He was declaring that though I love the gift and I have waited 20 years for the gift of Isaac, I do not need the gift over God. I do not need this over God. I am willing to do the unthinkable and to sacrifice it if that is what God wants, if that is what pleases God. And it says of Abraham that in that moment, God knew that he feared him. And it says elsewhere that Abraham was a friend of God because of his intimate relationship with God, his trust, his level of abandoned trust. It wasn't blind trust, it wasn't a reckless trust because it says elsewhere in Hebrews that Abraham knew that if he did it, God could resurrect him from the dead. 
So he was working with God's self-revelation. He wasn't just throwing darts at the wall and saying, man, I hope God likes this. He knew why he was worshiping God. And he had a level of connectedness to his creator that he didn't worship the creation over the creator. This is such a stinging, convicting truth in our own lives, in my own life, as we think about the things that we so pursue and crave as needs, as, as fundamental to our being, and God says, no, the only thing that you really need is me. Has something else in your life taken his place? Again, when Job, a righteous man, loses practically everything, what is his response? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Pursuit of God, there is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. This is the nature of idolatry that the second and first commandment are seeking to uproot from our lives. This insidious, subtle, acceptable way that we go about pursuing substitutes in the name of God. And and again, I'm, I'm not condemning things. We're not condemning the good and the beautiful. We're not condemning the things in life that God gives to us as gifts of mercy, gifts of grace that bring us joy, that bring us pleasure, that bring us fulfillment. Those things on their own are not evil. Us in our fallenness take them and corrupt ourselves with them when we make them substitutes in the place of God. I think secondly, another entanglement we have is this whole idea of images, particularly in our day. We live in an image and entertainment saturated culture. And we are inundated with it. We're on our phones all the time. We're on Facebook all the time. We're watching movies all the time. We're on YouTube all the time. And, and, and these things have a profound effect on our worship. Because these constant images portray the perfect body, the perfect life, the perfect house, the perfect spouse. They can be other images that we elevate. Things that maybe look more godly, like we want the perfect church. We want the perfect church with the perfect music and with the perfect people. We want these things as good things, and we are always contending with our imaginations influenced by the images coming at us from all sides. And as such, we are indeed a people that are prone to worship images. If that is not enough, we are above all else prone to worship ourselves. Ironically, the very image bearers of God in the world. God who has made us in his image. Instead of reflecting the light of God, we turn it inward and we corrupt ourselves. We love ourselves. And 
Paul says in 2 Timothy, I think it's chapter 4, that in the last days, men would be lovers of self. That this would be uh, sort of the outflow of the systemic outflow of what Romans just declared. That we have corrupted ourselves. We have exchanged the glory of the immortal for the glory of the mortal. We have elevated it. This is what they did in Rome. This is what they did in the Greek culture. This is what we're doing in our culture. And it's, it's had a profound and evil effect. You see it with homosexuality. You see it with the transgender movement. You see it with the corruption of our bodies sexually, the mutilation of small children. This is all systemic from an idolatrous root of rebellion against God and his created design. So what is the answer to this threat? Well, the answer is the rest of the verses, thankfully. Verses 5 and 6. He says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to a thousand generations, if you have a different version, of those who love me and keep my commandments. Our remedy is to understand a couple things, that we have and serve a jealous God. What does that mean? He is not an indifferent lover. He is not aloof from our pursuit of him. He cares more than we can possibly imagine how we love him, how we pursue him. And because he is profoundly pure and holy, he will execute a profound judgment on those who, what does the text say? Hate him. So God is comparing these two concepts of hate and love. He's comparing them as the only options. Okay, he's not saying that there's people kind of in the middle that sort of love God and, you know, they, they're like casual, maybe lukewarm would be Revelation's take. God is saying, you either love me or you hate me. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. So there's only two roads to take in our pursuit of loving God. We're either going to do it our way and prove in the end that we hate God in his ways, or we're going to do it God's way and obtain the most, one of the most profound promises, I believe, in all of Scripture, that those who love God, he will show his steadfast love, his covenantal love, his his love that is non-negotiable because it's bound to himself. He will show it and express it to each succeeding generation who loves God his way to a thousand generations. This is God's declaration over us that love him his way, that pursue him by faith, that live based on his self-revelation and not our own. But any other way is a way of hatred of God. It is a way of ungodliness. It is a way that will produce generational calamity, generational pain. Now, I want to qualify this because on the surface, it would seem to indicate that God punishes the children for the sins of the fathers. Now, right away, if you're tracking with me, you would say, and you'd revolt against that rightly, because you'd say, well, wait a minute, God is just. How does he punish the innocent for the wicked? Well, he does not do that because, again, using the Bible to explain the Bible, Ezekiel 18, and I would commend you read that. We don't have time today to read the whole chapter, but read Ezekiel 18 if you have questions on this, and it teaches us that God is just, of course. He judges justly, and he says in that chapter that only the soul of those who sin 
shall die, meaning he will not sort of impose on the succeeding generations to follow. If, if a father is wicked, if a father hates God, and perhaps in this room we have kind of some baggage around what that could look like in our own lives, and we don't have to carry that curse. I think this is super awesome because we are not bound in generational cycles unless we so choose to be bound. God declares that I am just. You do not have to repeat the sins of your father. If your father was a wicked man, you can say he was a wicked man. And you don't have to follow in his footsteps. By the grace of God, you can pursue the Lord his way. You can pursue love for God. You can pursue a Godward life, and God will honor it. We have seen this play out in the narrative, if you've been following us in the church reading, of the sons of David, who it seems like such a mess. As David here, this king after God's own heart, bequeaths the, the kingdom to Solomon, who has such a tremendous start and brings the kingdom to its pinnacle, to its peak of success and power in the world. And then Solomon turns away from God. His heart was not wholly devoted. And then right away, it starts to just fall apart, generation after generation after generation. But it fell apart because each generation broke covenant with God. God declared to David that if your sons obey me and keep my commandments, you will never lack a son on the throne. But ultimately, many of them did. They rejected God categorically, even the worst being Manasseh, who it says was more abominable than all of the kings before him, sacrificing his sons and daughters in the fire, erecting all kinds of uh, altars throughout Jerusalem, defiling the temple of God, bringing male prostitution and occultic worship back into Jerusalem. And then it says God humbled him because he took him into uh, captivity. And it says Manasseh humbled himself and repented. And in mind-blowing compassion, God relents and restores Manasseh, this wicked king, proving that he is a just God, proving that he is a gracious God, proving that he is a covenant-keeping God, because even when we defile ourselves, if we repent, the Lord is merciful. And he will not let the children bear the punishment of the fathers if the children turn their heart to God and say, I do not want to follow in these wicked footsteps. God will be faithful. But in keeping with that, God will also judge. God will also judge. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers all the way to the fourth generation if they persist in hating God. In James chapter 4, verses 4 and 10, James, the brother of Jesus, he writes this. He says, to the church, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity means hatred. It's not like a nice term. It doesn't even just mean friction. Like we have some enmity sometimes with people in our lives, and we say, I oh, just, you know, don't really get along with them. No, enmity here is hatred. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This gets at the jealousy of God. But he gives, excuse me, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil 
and he will flee from you. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What is the way out of this pit? What is the way out of these generational sins? It's to understand that God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you because he is a pure and holy God. But we must repent. We must humble ourselves and submit ourselves to God. We must resist the devil, which is awesome because you can't resist the devil until you first submit to God. Then you must draw near to God. God says, I will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, meaning no longer be torn asunder, having a foot in the world, a foot in God, a heart yearning for the world, a heart yearning for God. He says, no longer be double-minded, but instead, even go so far in your repentance to take your joy and turn it into gloom, to actually humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So in closing, as we wrap this up, will we respond to the jealous call of God on our souls? We have such a glorious promise. For God says to those who love him that he will love them to a thousand generations. This is the same promise that Jesus Christ, the very image of the invisible God, the one who has revealed the Father, makes to his disciples in John 15, 1 through 11. I want to close in John chapter 15. If you turn there. Jesus doubles down on the second commandment in a profound way, doubles down on all the commandments, but he ultimately says in in John 15, verse 1, speaking to his disciples, speaking to those who were after the heart of God, were following him. He says of himself in John chapter 15, the Gospel of John, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I love this because if this morning perhaps or in your life categorically, God is pruning anything in you. If God is pruning you, that is a sign of health. That is a sign of God's grace. That is a sign that you're learning to love God his way. And not only that, it's a sign that you've borne fruit that you are his disciple, that you belong to God. So sometimes we take pruning to be the wrong thing. Say, God, why are you cutting me up like this? And God says, no, this is evidence. This is supporting the fact that you are in the vine. And it's such a beautiful thing to be reminded that God prunes those and disciplines those whom he loves. He says in verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So this is the promise of the kind of visiting the sins to the third and fourth generations that Jesus is really doubling down on here. He says, if you don't abide in me, you're going to prove to not be a part of me. 
You're going to prove to be gathered up and cast into the fire. You're going to wither up and not bear any fruit. He says, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He says, abide in my love. Now here's the great thing. How do we do this? How do we abide in his love? How do we, how do we love God rightly? Coming back to our overarching theme. What did verse 6 say? If you keep my commandments, what does Jesus say? Something different? He says in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I love this, that Jesus doesn't change the program. Jesus affirms the program that the only way to love God rightly is to keep his word, to be a lover of scripture, to be someone who delights in the word of God as their very bread. What does this produce in the life of the Christian? One who seeks, though imperfectly, but nevertheless, to keep the word of God by the grace of God, it produces the joy of God. To keep the word of God by the grace of God produces the joy of God. And it's a particular kind of joy because it's the joy of the only begotten Son of God given to us, who it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the joy of Jesus is a joy that I want. The joy of Jesus is a victorious joy. It's a joy that transcends circumstances. It's a joy that is born out of in the fruit of delighting in the word and ways of God, saying, Lord, I don't want to worship you based on my own speculative imagination, the own corrupt lusts of my heart. I want to worship you as you have revealed yourself by scripture in faith. I want to delight in you. I want to delight in the law of God. I want to, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, run in the way of your commandments for you will enlarge my heart. So if God is doing this in your life, you are a blessed person. You are a person who God is pruning, who God is teaching to follow him as his disciple. You are a person who is responding to the grace of God in your life. And all this concludes in this precious reality that God in Christ is molding you into the image of his son. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is our goal, church, that we would be indeed conformed into the image of Christ. So let's continue to pursue it with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask for your mercy and grace. Help us to digest what you've given us this morning. Help us to work it into the crevices of our lives. Help us to have wisdom and discernment to discern how we might apply your word and what idols and things that we need to really uproot and cast away to say, Lord, there is no substitute for the living God. There is no substitute for your word. There is no substitute for the joy of God as we obey God. By faith. So teach us these things, work them into our hearts and souls by your Spirit. 
and we commit ourselves to you, and we praise you for this glorious promise that you will keep us in your love to a thousand generations as we love you and love your word under the day of eternity. We commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.